parents, don't worry if, if they get a little rowdy. I have two little kids at home. We've been watching church from home, you know, like many of you for the past few months. And it is a madhouse. So I'm used to it is all I have to say. So the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 29 is our passage for today. Let me read it to you. And you'll want to keep your Bible handy or whatever you're using to look at the passage. Keep it handy because after we read it, I'll be referring back to it, but we're not going to put each chunk up on the screen for sake of time. So just keep it, keep it ready. Uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word, and thanks be to God. Well, if you've been following along with our series in the book of Mark, you should hopefully be arriving at a bit of an understanding at what this book is all about. Because the main points for every section could be summed up in just about the same way, something like this. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how you should respond to him. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, how you respond to him. And if you can answer those prompts, or if you can understand how the book of Mark would answer those prompts, then you have a pretty good understanding of what this book is all about. Uh, but there is one pitfall for us, you know, as we go through the book week after week, there's, there's a pitfall that we can run into. Uh, especially if you were paying attention to last week's passage, you remember there was this climactic moment where Jesus takes his disciples aside and he asks them, who do you think that I really am? And Peter responds for the rest of the disciples and he says, you're the Christ, the son of God. Ding, ding, great job, good answer, Peter. Peter could pass a theology quiz. He got the answer right last week, but Jesus still has more for him, more to show him because he still lacks something. Peter needs an experience of who Jesus is, not just knowledge about him. And so when we come to, to these passages, you know, looking for answers to, okay, what does this tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do and how I respond to him? These ought to be for us more than just note-taking, quiz-answering questions. Right, so uh, growing up doing some work around the house or little construction projects with my dad, uh, he was always like a stickler for workplace safety around the house. Like if you're using a nail gun, wear earplugs, uh, use eye protection. And of course, as a young man, like all young people are when it comes to being safe, I was ornery about it. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need safety glasses. And so one day he's like, all right, let me tell you a story. He said, I used to not think that I really needed safety glasses and earplugs and all that stuff either. But then one day I was hammering, you know, a nail with, with a hammer, the thing that you do with hammers and nails. And the nail bounced off the board and flew into my eye. And he went on to tell a more graphic depiction than I'm going to tell you of what a nail does to an eyeball. But ever since then, he says, I've kind of been a big proponent of safety glasses. <laughs> So what changed my dad's behavior? Was it that somebody brought him a statistic, you know, a statistics sheet about all the eye injuries that happen when you don't wear safety glasses? No, it was an experience. That changed him. And that's normally what it takes for us to change. And so Jesus has an experience. His disciples are about to get an experience of who he is, what he came to do. So uh, let's start with this, who Jesus is. The transfiguration is normally what uh, we call this section of the story. And there's nothing quite like this story in all of the Bible. Uh, Jesus' disciples see him for a moment uh, changed. And it's hard to really know how to describe it. I mean, they see him changed like, they see him inside out, almost. They see on the outside who he is on the inside, as it were. They're given a glimpse into his true nature as He's not less than a man. He is truly man, but he's certainly more than a man. But why? Why do all this? Uh, Mark leaves us a few clues here as to the significance of all this because there's, there's multiple echoes from this story 
of another mountaintop experience that happened in the Old Testament. That was a really, really, really big deal. Okay, Mount Sinai. When Moses goes up to kind of first meet the God of Israel, a lot of these same things happen, even the little tiny details. Moses has to wait six days before he goes up on the mountain. The disciples wait six days before they go up. Moses takes three named helpers with him up the mountain. So does Jesus. When Moses gets to the top, God's glory covers the whole mountain with a cloud. And then Moses' face, if you remember the story, begins to shine with radiance because he was like around God. So when he goes back down to the camp, his face is glowing and people are afraid of him. But the real significance of the transfiguration comes when you don't just understand the similarities, but you understand the differences between what happened on Mount Sinai and what Mark is portraying is happening here. This is not just Sinai 2.0. Because while Moses' face shines as a reflection of God's glory, Jesus begins to shine from within. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he, he begins to shine like the sun Moses shines like the moon. Jesus begins to shine like the sun. His face and then his clothes begin to radiate from, from within, not from without. So this is a little bit different. And then Moses himself seems to show up in this strange encounter along with Elijah. And they begin to talk with Jesus. What is that about? And then as soon as Peter suggests, hey, this is awesome, let's build uh, a tent, one for each of you guys and we can just hang out here for a while, then Moses and Elijah just poof, disappear. And there's only Jesus left. What's Mark trying to tell us? I mean, I, I do feel bad for Peter here, right? Poor guy, he just always needs something to do. And most scholars think that Mark's gospel was written from Peter's account. So this is Peter retelling the stories to Mark and he's writing them down. And that makes perfect sense to me when you read this account because it's like Mark's taking notes and he's like, Peter, why would you suggest setting up tents at a moment like this? I mean, this is crazy. And Peter's like, I didn't know what to say. And Mark's like, okay, I'll write that down, you know. And so even as, as Peter begins to like interrupt, you know, uh, and he's talking about let's set up camp, there's this voice that booms from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son. This is my unique son. This is my priceless son. He's one of a kind. Listen to him. So what's the point? Why does that voice come from the cloud? Why, is it, why does Jesus get all shiny? Why do Moses and Elijah show up? What's the point? It's because God wanted the disciples to not just be able to confess, but to experience Jesus as the beloved Son of God. They needed to know, they needed to see that he's not on par with any other religious teacher or figure from their religious history. He's utterly unique. He does not belong in a pantheon of other gods or religious figures. I mean, this is Moses this is Elijah, the greatest of the great leaders from the prophets of Israel, and yet they immediately fade into the background next to the beloved son. And do you remember, um, the, so the voice, the words that come from this voice in the cloud, they should sound familiar to you. We've heard them before in the gospel of Mark. And even in two of the other gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we only hear the voice of like God the Father from heaven 
uh, twice, here and at Jesus' baptism. And the crazy thing is, both times he says the same thing, essentially. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. Why would those be the only spoken words of God the Father given to us in in the Gospels? Uh, I can't put it any better than Dale Bruner. He says it like this. It means that the single most important fact that God wants the church and the world to know, barring none, is all that we have in Jesus of Nazareth. In the Father's estimation, Jesus Christ is the beloved Son. He loves him and he's second to none. That's who he is. Is this who he is to you? Would that describe your estimation of Jesus, your affection for him? He's the beloved. He is my beloved and I listen to him. Do you listen to him? Does the voice of Jesus have first place in your attention? Is he the loudest voice in your ears these days? There's a lot of voices in the world right now. But is the voice of Jesus louder for you than your favorite celebrity, politician, preacher, newsfeed, social media site? Do you stop and listen to the words of Jesus? And are they the most prominent thing that's shaping your life and shaping your thinking these days? Uh, You know the saying, uh, you are what you eat, right? Heard that? Uh, It's kind of true in the spiritual realm as well. You are what you see. You become what you behold. Uh, In other words, whatever most occupies your attention will most shape your affections and your actions. So for you, can you honestly say that Jesus holds first place in your attention? It's who he is. He's the much-loved, fully authoritative son of God. Is that who he is to you? It's who he is. Now, what he came to do, what he came to do, I'm especially looking at verses 9 through 13 here, if you're looking at your passage. After, after this breathtaking experience uh, up on the mountain, they, they come down, come down the mountain. And along the way, Jesus tells the disciples to not say anything, <laughs> not a word, about what just happened until he's raised from the until he's raised from the dead, right? And they begin to talk among themselves, uh, questioning, "What does this rising from the dead even mean?" <laughs> Which kind of shows to me like how little they understand exactly what Jesus is up to. I mean, I can only imagine the conversation later. They're like, "Oh, he meant rise from the dead," you know, like actually. But I think their dullness. Their difficulty in believing what's going on right in front of them uh, should be quite helpful for us. Especially for some of you, if you are still considering the truth of Christianity or you you struggle to believe the claims of Christ, I think especially of a lot of my students uh, here in our student ministry that are just still putting together the pieces and grappling with the claims of Christ, I think it's good to know that Christianity is so counterintuitive. And so hard to believe sometimes that even the first Christians had a hard time believing it. You know, but eventually they do. Eventually they do. And Peter at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, would write these words in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is, with, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, in other words, Peter says, we did not make this up. We could not have made this up because this is not how we expected the Messiah to be. This is a, this is a compelling argument for Christianity that you should at least consider. For the first Christians to believe that a man was the son of God and give their lives to spread the news of that throughout the first century, first century Jews, this was a, this was a mind-boggling stretch for them. And they didn't see any of it coming. But he says, you know what? It really happened. But you see in these verses from Mark, the disciples at this time, they just cannot get their minds around the idea of a dying Messiah. And you even see that in the question they're about to ask, but Jesus just does not get off track. For the rest of the book, he's gonna bring up his impending death over and over again. It even started in the last chapter. It's as if there was, a, if there was like a score behind, like background music behind the Gospel of Mark. It is shifting from the major key to the minor key. And it's gonna stay in the minor key until almost the, the very end of the book. And so Jesus says, don't say anything until I've risen from the dead. And then they bring up this seemingly random question about Elijah. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? But this question gives away their expectations for what they thought Jesus was going to do, how he was going to be, the type of Messiah he was going to be. Uh, most scholars, I guess Bible scholars at that time, they would have seen in the book of Malachi uh, the last, what we say is the last of these Old Testament prophets, a prediction that before the Lord came again, before the Lord returned to Israel, Elijah would come back and he would kind of like get everything ready for the, the coming of the Lord. He'd restore everything and get everyone ready for God's coming. You see this in Malachi chapter four. It says, behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they expected when Elijah appeared, he would go before the Lord, he'd get everybody ready for the tr like true worship of God, and then the Lord would come to a people that were ready for him. And if they were not ready, well, then he would take names and kick tail. But Jesus, again, is subverting their expectations. They're looking for Elijah. But he says, he's already come, but you missed him. He too was rejected and abused. He was killed. And they can expect that same sort of thing to happen to the Messiah, just as it is written of him. Jesus doesn't get off message. Now we learn elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus identified this Elijah figure who was getting everybody ready for the coming of the Lord as John the Baptist. Uh, you may remember his character from earlier in the book. Uh, even when he first shows up on the scene, Mark mentioned that he's dressed in like this camel hair robe and that he ate locust and wild honey. And you read that in the story, you're like, thank you, Mark, for that detail. I have no idea why you included that other than it's just weird. Well, that is what the prophet Elijah did. That's how he dressed. It's like John the Baptist was dressing up as Elijah for Halloween, except he was really being him and fulfilling his role. Even in the Gospel of Luke, when his 
birth is predicted right before the Luke chapter 2 nativity story. There's a story about John the Baptist. And an angel says to his father, he's going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. So this figure is John the Baptist, but he seems wildly unsuccessful in his mission to make the people ready. He's beheaded by the Jewish king. And soon the Messiah is going to be crucified by her leaders. So the disciples don't yet understand that restoring all things first means the Messiah will have to suffer many things. Restoration can only come through the Messiah's suffering. It must be this way. Jesus says that he came to do what no other religious leader or teacher could do for us. He set his face to come down from the mountain into the valley of our world and suffer like us, to suffer for us. I mean, in this moment, you could just see like Jesus whisking away with Elijah and Moses back to heaven, but he doesn't. He stays. He does what Elijah and Moses cannot do. He comes down to us, literally in the story. He comes down the mountain, and figuratively, I'm saying Jesus comes down the mount of heaven to us. You've heard many people say that there's a lot of different ways up the mountain to God, right? But only one God has come down the mountain to us. Uh, There's a poem that I've quoted to you before, but I like it so much. I'm going to quote it one more time. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And no other God has wounds, but thou alone. You see, the only thing that could placate the wrath of God and transform the hearts of men was the suffering of God, the suffering of the Messiah. Very soon, Jesus would be on another mount surrounded not by two saints, but by two thieves. He would not see a cloud of glory, but a cloud of darkness. He would not hear a voice of affirming love, but only the silence of forsakenness as he bore the sin of the world. He came to do for us what no one else could do for us. But the disciples do not understand why would God do things this way? Why not have a triumphant Messiah? Why suffering first? One commentator said they wanted to go straight to glory 909, but skip suffering 101. God's road for his people almost always seems to lead through the valley of affliction. It was true for his people of old. It was true for his own son. And it's true for us too. And it's usually hard for us to grasp that God will use the affliction, even the worst of afflictions, to bring good and beauty to his children. It's hard for us to grasp. But can you trust, will you trust, that God can ultimately bring good to you from your afflictions, even when you can't see a good reason for why he's letting things go the way they are? You'll be in good company because Jesus walked that road for you. He walked that road first. So that's who he is. This is what he came to do, to suffer for us. Now, how do we respond? How do we respond to all that? What does God want from from us? Well, it's interesting. The story of the transfiguration is followed up immediately by a story that's all about faith. 
It's all about faith. And you might say, yeah, yeah, okay, I saw that coming. That's right. What does God want from us? To believe. Just believe. Just have faith. I know. Just believe. Well, not so fast. Because this story is gritty. (laughs) And it's realistic about our struggle to trust God. Uh, We're thrust here into a scenario that's terribly dark and unsettling as they return from the mountain. Look at, you know, verses 14 and onward. We see this child that's been afflicted and oppressed by a demon for most of his life. Now, I don't don't know about you, but for me, the, the picture of a child suffering portrays the the evil and darkness of the world in a way that nothing else does and in the face of this powerful darkness we find the rest of Jesus disciples arguing that's right arguing not praying not helping the son even though they can't cast out the demon apparently not helping but arguing Uh, Professor David Garland, he gives the church a stinging critique here. I'm going to read this quote to you. It's a bit long, but it's very strong. And before I read the quote, I just want you to know that the commentary that I pulled this from was written in 1996, 25 years ago. But man, it sounds like things today. And if you have someone else in mind as I'm reading this quote, please put your sniper scope away and pull a mirror out instead says, they wrangled with their opponents while a father stood by, agonizing over over the suffering of his child. Cynics would contend that this reflects the church's normal state of affairs. They spend more time arguing than helping anybody or praying. People come to Christ's followers for help and they get trivial arguments instead. Most people in desperate straits do not care about learned disputations over fine points of interpretation or theological controversies over suspected heresies. They want help. Far too many people have turned away from God and the church because they were turned off by the petty bickering of those more interested in winning arguments within the church or the secular world than in winning the world to faith. While we debate who is right, who is wrong, who is at fault, the world stands by helplessly in the grips of evil. One side may win a skirmish with others, but lose the battle with Satan. Church, may God have mercy on us. May it not be so here Because of course there are going to be times and issues about which those in the church will disagree. But if people look to us for help and hope, if you have friends that look to you for help and hope, if they were to follow you on social media, what would they see? Would they find Christ? Would they find help? Or would they find arguing? Christ is what we have to offer the world. And that's about it. We are ignorant and arrogant to think that we can go toe to toe with the evil of our day, armed only with arguments or activism. I mean, Jesus tells the disciples as they're licking their wounds after this encounter, he said, this kind only comes out by prayer. It's a bit curious, but I don't think he means, oh, guys, this was a level 10 demon. You have to pray about level 10 demons. Other demons you could probably cast out on your own, but this you had to pray. No, I don't think that's what he means at all. 
I think he means that the very real evil and darkness that we find ourselves confronted with in every age, the biggest problems in the world cannot be solved by mere arguing or mere activism, but only by a life of prayer and trust in God. We need the power of God if we're gonna have any impact on the community or the world that we live in. But he wants us to learn to ask for it. He wants to break us of our dreadful pride and self-sufficiency and learn to be children who ask. I think of the words of the, the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. There's a line that's been in my head a lot this week. It says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We're so quick to try to solve our own issues with our own strength of argumentation or just sorting it out. You know, we just, we fret over things and we forget to bring them to God in prayer. And you sense Jesus' exasperation with the disciples, right? He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring, bring the boy to me. But then what happens next, I, I think, is one of the most profound lessons about faith in all of Scripture. Uh, they, they bring the boy to Jesus, and he's thrown to the ground in what appears to be like a grand mall seizure, only this is far more sinister, right? And the father is standing nearby watching his son once again thrown into this violent frenzy as he's seen so many times before. What does Jesus do? What's he going to do in this scenario? What's well, crazy to notice, I mean, he, does, he doesn't heal the boy outright. Like he doesn't just automatically, immediately heal him. First, he engages with the father. He asks him a question. I'm sure he already knew the answer to, but he wants to talk to him. So he asks him a question. He asks a compassionate question. How long has this been happening and then the father explains that this has occurred since the boy was very young. And then perhaps in a, in a last-ditch effort of hope against hope, he says, if you can do something, please help us. And Jesus seems taken aback by the statement and says, you know, if you can do anything, anything is possible if you trust me. Now, this is, this is fascinating to me. I mean, you get the sense that Jesus is kind of offended by the father's if statement. <laughs> and he waits to heal the boy as he converses with this man and evaluates his faith. Why do that? Why not just go ahead and heal him? Why make the healing dependent on the man's faith? I mean, this kid's right in front of Jesus, convulsing, suffering, right in front of his eyes. So why is faith so important to Jesus? You read the Gospels and it's like he's always looking for it. And he's so happy when he finds it. When he finds people who trust him, who believe in him, he's so happy. And then he's so exasperated when his disciples don't have it. Trust in God is obviously a very, 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 very important thing to Jesus. But why? Could it be that our refusal to trust in God, our tendency 
to cut ourselves off from him, to go our own way, to attempt to live life without him, perhaps that is the worst possible thing you could do for yourself. That the worst possible thing for us is to live without dependence upon God. We need it because it's how we were made. It's just how things are. We set ourselves up to live against the whole grain of the universe when we try to live without God, with him out of the equation and us living just on our own self-reliance. That, perhaps, is our greatest problem. And if so, then learning to trust God is our greatest need. And so Jesus waits a second. Okay, class quiz. Can Jesus cast out a demon? Yes. This is not hard for him. Can a man trust God? Not so easy. And yet for Jesus, that is the crucial thing that he's looking looking for. I mean, he's glad. He's always ready. He's always willing to release his power and strength to help anyone. But he wants us to learn to ask. He wants our trust. And it is the thing that we need most, more than anything, more than healing from our harshest afflictions, more than comfort, more than a happy life, we need to be broken of our pride and stubbornness and learn the humility of living as God's dependence. This is so important to him that he even sometimes withholds things, even very good things that may hurt. And it may hurt him to withhold, but he does in order to deepen our dependence upon him. Because in God's economy, nothing, nothing is more valuable and nothing is more needful for us than faith. Trust in him. It's pure gold, pure gold to him. But you say, that is hard. <laughs> I get, it is hard for me to really trust God. I am anxious, especially when I'm hurting and you're right, it is hard. We are bad at it. We're bad at it by nature. Our faith is wobbly and our self-reliance runs so very deep. So what can you, what do you do? What can you do? I love the response of the father here. It's just gut-wrenchingly honest. As he watches his son in pain, he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. What an answer. And what a lesson for us about faith. The Father, he gets something right here. Because in a moment of desperate weakness, he cried out to Jesus for something he knew he didn't have within himself. He knew that he was not filled with faith. He knew he was hounded by doubt. And he knew he didn't have the strength to believe as he should. And so he asked for help for that too. You see, real faith is often frail. It is small, but it is humble, it's honest, and it admits its weakness. Real faith cries out for more faith. Real faith knows it doesn't have what it takes and that it needs God even for an infusion of more faith. The Father displays for us what you might call repentant unbelief. Repentant unbelief. And this man's prayer, 
It has become a prayer for so many of us, for struggling believers throughout the ages. And perhaps this needs to be your prayer today. Um, Maybe this needs to be your prayer this year. (laughs) Maybe this needs to be the prayer of your life. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. But the good news is, he does. He does help our unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, so we say, with this Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We all have situations that test our faith in you. We're confronted with our failure to trust you. And yet you teach us here to cry out to you for more faith and you promise to grant it. Like the father of this boy, we are, we are riddled with doubt. We're full of fear. So help us in our struggle to trust you. And grant us even today, grant us through the, the mysterious work of your spirit, a deeper personal experience of who you are and how much you've done for us so that we would love you and trust you as the beloved son of God who suffered in our place for us. Let this be the ground of our trust, what you have done for us on the cross. And we pray all this for your namesake. Amen.